that Bill read for us early on, earlier on. I suppose it's always been the case, but it's certainly the case nowadays that this present generation of young people try to find a way of distinguishing themselves and their language from the rather, the rather embarrassing generation of their parents. And you must have noticed uh, the particular way that young people, teenagers, have of speaking. For example, the words soul and like dominate almost every sentence. And I hear people saying things like this, I am like so not doing that. And I have gone on a one-man crusade in, in, in Glasgow at the other end of the M8 there, with my own three daughters and with the young people in our church and everyone else I hear saying it, I, I, I have felt as though I've been entirely on my own trying to point out this ludicrous way of speaking. And then on Friday evening as we were going out together in the car to dinner with my wife and family, there ahead of us was a phenomenal new uh, uh, hoarding, uh, advertising hoarding at the side of the road for the Economist newspaper. And at last I discovered an ally in my campaign. It simply said this, right... Uh, smack in the middle of the road there so to speak you can so tell people who like don't read the economist <laughs> fantastic I, I nearly got out of the car and leapt up and down for joy and I'm not given to that kind of thing my current favourite abuse of the English language is the use, the additional use of the word not at the end of the sentence you must have heard this so Sunday morning, coming home in the car from church. Dad, that was a really good joke you told this morning. Pause. Not. And I've never got used to that because you automatically you feel built up and encouraged and then the slam dunk comes with that dreadful use. Well, I have succumbed to peer pressure and have used that expression as a title for this study this morning. Maybe you read it in the program as you came in and maybe you thought the title was I'm Afraid Not. But that's not the title. The title is, I'm afraid not, with the emphasis on the negative transition at the end. The subtitle, The Fear to End All Fears. That sounds a bit like the blurb for a terrifying new ride at Alton Towers, but it's not that. I want us to think on this Armistice Sunday about what Jesus says in Luke 12, and especially in verses 4 and 5. I hope you can see the relevance of them to a morning like this. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. I submit to you at the beginning this morning, that fear is the fear to end all fears. It's undeniably true that we live in a climate of increasing fear. Many people have fears about their personal safety. They're afraid to leave their homes of an evening. And some are even afraid that the security of their homes will be breached while they're actually occupying them, which would be even more dreadful. But beyond the issues of personal safety and domestic safety, we now have to contend with the issues of national security. And this new millennium has brought the threat of terrorism to every home and to every person. The government here in our country is convinced that it is really only a matter of time before there is a major terrorist attack on the UK mainland. And the dreadful irony is difficult to escape this morning. Today we remember those who gallantly gave their lives in two world wars. 
many of them going to fight believing that these would be the wars in succession to end all wars and yet as Bill reminded us so helpfully and pertinently at the beginning of our service this morning the number of memorials to those who have fallen in war increases year upon year as our service men and women are still called to go and engage in conflict and rightly our thoughts are also uh, as was mentioned this morning with the Black Watch Regiment in Iraq at this time and at this time our international leaders meet to confer on the question of how we fight a new kind of war the war on terrorism a war unlike conventional war long and bitter experience in the Middle East and in South Africa and Northern Ireland and in other troubled spots and now in Iraq and Afghanistan have shown us that terrorism cannot be defeated by the normal approach to subjugating an enemy when people are willing to die in order to kill then conventional warfare is bound to be inadequate And yet, here are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, which surely, if we understand them this morning in their context, must have the power to disarm the terrorists. I tell you, my friends, he says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. That is a fairly disarming statement of the Lord Jesus to those who deal in terror. The terrorist can only prosper in his cause by creating a climate of fear. That's why we call them terrorists and not just hijackers or bombers or murderers. It's not just by the actual deed of destroying life that they succeed. They succeed by the widespread terror that they cause by their actions. No wonder verse 4 is potentially bad news for the terrorists because it starves them of his vital oxygen. What a staggering verse this is. Let's think about it this morning. Two things basically I want us to notice in terms of the structure of the passage and then we'll go a little bit further into the main issue that Jesus raises. Notice with me first of all the way that Jesus assesses death. The way that Jesus assesses death. Again we'll read verse 4. I tell you my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. Those who crowded around the Lord Jesus that day must have taken a a double take, a double look as they heard this. What does the Lord Jesus mean by those who after killing us can do no more? What more is there to do? I was thinking this week that by this time, by the period in the Lord Jesus' ministry that was recorded in Luke 12, John the Baptist had already been decapitated in that appalling incident with the drunken King Herod. So even before the disciples faced the murderous opposition that they would later encounter, these men had some idea of how dreadful the death of a friend can be at the hands of a foe. Perhaps some of them who listened to the Lord Jesus that day had earlier been the disciples of John. Perhaps some of them had been given that grim task of going and recovering John's remains from Herod's prison. And if so, then they had seen what those who kill the body can do. They had witnessed with their own eyes the effect of the executioner's handiwork. They had had to go and collect John's remains and they buried John. And they grieved, as so many grieve today, over the murderous, premature, senseless death of a loved one. Those who kill the body at that moment seem to be all-powerful. 
those who kill the body at that moment seem as though they have done everything imaginable to us. But notice the way that Jesus assesses death. It's so strikingly different from the way that we would assess death. He's not denying the desperate tragedies of verse 4. Today we salute those who valiantly went, some of them going to certain death. And the Lord Jesus in this verse is not downplaying that sacrifice. And indeed when he spoke these words that day, he himself still had to face those who could kill the body. But nevertheless, we would have to conclude that his perspective on death diminishes death. He cuts death down to size. The implication of his challenge in verse 4 is astonishing. And it is this, that if you belong to the Lord Jesus by faith, then, get this, there is a limit to the impact of physical death on your life. That's amazing, isn't it? We're used to quantifying the impact of an injury on our lives. Or the impact of an an injury or a disability or an illness or something like that. We can quantify the impact of such and such a thing on our life. But here the Lord Jesus says there is actually going to be there's going to be a limit to the impact of death on your physical life. That is a remarkable thing. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. If all they can do is kill the body, don't worry about it, says Jesus. That will limit certain things, but it's not the be-all and end-all. Isn't that remarkable? So there is here, obviously, just to pick up a theme I mentioned a moment ago, there is here in the words of the Lord Jesus a limit to the terror that the terrorist can hope to create. If death is not the worst thing that can happen, then we don't need to fear death. And if we don't fear death, then whatever the terrorist may do, he's going to run short on his ability to spread terror, at least among the community of God's people who understand the truth of Luke 12, verse 4. Now, if you don't understand who's speaking here, if you don't understand the Lord Jesus and why he says what he does, then you'll think that what I'm saying is just bravado, just whistling in the wind, or just complete nonsense. And maybe you're thinking to yourself this morning, well, what could be worse than being killed? What could be done after that? Well, look at verse 5. I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after killing the killing of the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. As soon as we read this verse this morning, we know that we're not in very politically correct territory. This is not the kind of verse that we should be reading and preaching today according to certain modern, uh, even Christian writers. And their concern is that this kind of verse only alienates people from the Lord Jesus and his gospel and his church. And they don't want to be told about the realities of hell. And I will not deny that people detest talk of judgment and hell and flee from it. But actually, in verse 5, Jesus speaks these realities in order that people would be spared them. And he shares these things out of the heart of most incredible love towards those that he's communicating with on that day. So let me approach this difficult verse 5, this startling verse, in its context by drawing your attention to the second thing. We've seen the way that Jesus assesses death. Notice, secondly, the way that Jesus addresses them. In the beginning of verse 4, he addresses his friends. I tell you, my friends. So he has in his sights at this point those who were his disciples. And you can see from verse 1, as Bill read it to us, 
that a crowd of many thousands had gathered, so they began trampling on one another. But Jesus began to speak first to his disciples. That's a very important aspect there. The vast crowd around him were actually overhearing what Jesus had to say to his disciples. He was really addressing here his friends, and we need to keep that in mind. What a wonderful thing to have the Lord Jesus call you his friend. And yet we're bound to ask, is this a friendly thing to do? Is it the kind of thing a friend would do to tell his disciples that they should fear God because he has the power to cast them into hell after they've died? If only we could see what the Lord Jesus saw, we would understand why he spoke to his friends here as he did. Let me try to show you his perspective. Basically, Jesus gives his friends a choice of fears. There is a type of fear in life that will debilitate, and there is a type of fear that will liberate. Let's stay with the immediate context and try to see the fear that will debilitate. We've read about the Pharisees in verse 1 and 2 and 3. And the Pharisees were the recognized spiritual leaders of their day, and yet in verse 1, as we read this morning, Jesus brands them as hypocrites. And they were hypocrites because although they appeared to be God's men, they'd actually set themselves up in fierce opposition to God's Son. So in the first three verses, we have basically two things. We have a warning and we have a promise. We have a warning from the lips of the Lord Jesus to his disciples that they're to expect trouble from organized religion. Beware the yeast of the Pharisees, he says. And we have a promise that all the scheming of men which goes on in secret just now will one day be exposed and broadcast for everyone to hear. That's what Jesus means in verse 2 and 3 when he speaks of the things that are concealed, that will be disclosed, hidden, that will be made known, things said in the dark, things whispered, that will be proclaimed from the roofs. So let's try to reconstruct what the scenario was here. Let me ask you a question this morning. What would be the natural inclination and reaction of your heart if you were to hear that meetings were being held to plot your downfall, to plot your death? Surely the natural inclination of the heart would be fear. You would feel afraid. You would want to know who they were and what they were doing and what they were planning. And that's exactly the position now that the disciples were in. This is not an imaginary threat. Jesus tells the disciples to be on their guard since the Pharisees are up to no good. And the disciples are in the firing line precisely because they are the friends of the Lord Jesus. And they're being warned about this uh, subversive enemy activity, but they don't know what is being planned, and they don't know by whom it is being planned. So naturally they would be afraid, just as millions of people are afraid in exactly that way today as they listen to the news broadcasts or as they read the government brochure that came through all of our doors. We don't know who's planning the plots and we don't know what they're planning to do and we have this general sense of fear. We only have to listen to serious journalists like Jonathan Dimbleby to be convinced that plans and plots are afoot to bring death and destruction to the UK mainland. And there are many people then who are in that position of fear that the disciples must have felt when Jesus said, now you need to be careful about the Pharisees. They're up to no good. 
They're hypocrites. They look as though, they present themselves as though they're God's men, but they've set themselves up in the vilest, murderous opposition to God's Son. So everybody knows that. Having said that, although we want to see these verses in that wider context to make an application for today, at this point we need to remind ourselves that Jesus is specifically addressing his followers. He is now talking to his friends. So we must apply his words to his friends today. To those who are suffering because they are his friends. To those who are in the firing line because they are gospel people. Professor Todd has reminded us very helpfully of that already this morning. And it's been in my mind very much this week. We had at our midweek meeting last Tuesday, Martin Dudgeon of Asia Link, And he was telling us just there on Tuesday that he's recently been to Hanoi in uh, northern Vietnam. And there he met with a group of pastors who'd been warned that if they kept preaching the gospel of Christ, they or their wives or the members of their families would disappear without a trace. It is a reminder to us this morning, brothers and sisters, as we pray for the suffering church. And as we hear, just as I mentioned, just one example of what our brothers and sisters are going on elsewhere. It's a reminder to us that while the words of Jesus in verse 4 about those who kill the body may seem slightly far off to us, especially in relation to opposition that is because of our faith, that is far off to us because of where we live and the time in which we live. But it is a reminder to us that this verse 4 of Luke 12 is not in the least obscure to our brothers and sisters in other countries today who face real opposition because they are the friends of Jesus. Because they take their stand for the Lord Jesus. And ashamedly, many of us have to admit that we falter long before the serious hurdles that they face. It only takes for one of our friends or colleagues to give us a pitying look of of contempt for us to shrink from acknowledging the Lord Jesus. The fear of ridicule is enough to silence most of us in this climate. Far less the fear of abduction and murder. But back to the point, this is the type of debilitating fear that the Lord Jesus is speaking about here. He's warning them to be on their guard, not to be unaware of the plot of the enemy. But at the same time, he's saying, I'm telling you who not to fear. Because that could be a debilitating fear. That could have some serious implications. Notice them there in verse 8. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. And then verse 10 goes on in the context to give us two classic ways in which people disown God. One being speaking a word against the Lord Jesus which can be repented of, the other being a word of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which in context is to look and examine the, word, the, the ministry of Jesus and to say it is a work of Satan. You can read that particularly clearly in Mark's Gospel. That's what the blasphemy means. But it, it comes under this heading of disowning Christ. What an amazingly clear litmus test this is. Whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned by the angels of God. You see, when that debilitating fear clutches my heart, it is easy to disown Christ. It is easy in that moment to shrink back. 
and to decline from standing for him. That is the litmus test. Paul said later in Romans 10 verse 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And there is that sense in which if we confess verbally that Jesus is Lord, it is the sign, it is the clearest indication, it is the true litmus test that we have believed in our hearts that God has raised them from the dead, that He is Lord. And you can see why there would be serious doubts that a person had ever truly understood the gospel of a Savior who left heaven and gave everything for us on the cross if that person was quite unwilling to lift his head and open his mouth and let it be known that he trusts and serves the Lord Jesus. And therein lies the terrible concern of our days. But we all know that strong temptation to sit quiet and avoid the flag. And it is precisely because of the strength of this temptation that Jesus prescribes some very strong medicine in verse 5 as an antidote to this debilitating fear of man. Here is our alternative fear in the choice. If we want to avoid the debilitating fear of man, we need to know the liberating fear of God. Verse 5, I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after killing the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now remember that Jesus is still addressing his friends. They are his followers. So what is he not saying? He is not telling them that their heavenly father is ill-tempered and unpredictable. He is not telling them that they may finally discover that he has changed his mind on his promise to rescue them when they stand before him in eternity and that he might just on a whim throw them into hell. Not at all. He is telling them that when they are faced by the hostility of those who are opposed to the Savior and opposed to his gospel and therefore opposed to his people, in that moment when we may fear man more than anything else, when we may be tempted to cave in for fear of man's hatred or even just his disapproval of us or even just his contempt of us, we are to remember in that moment that our fellow man has no ultimate power over us. We have to remember in that moment, according to verse 5, that power finally resides only with God. To fear Him is to take Him with absolute seriousness. To fear Him is to consider His verdict on our lives more important than the verdict of our fellow man. And that is the liberating fear. That is the fear to end all earthly fears. Now, I'm not trying to soften the words of verse 5. I'm not trying to uh, negotiate my way around the Lord Jesus' mention of hell. I've tried to show you what he's saying there in terms of the ultimate power of God and his verdict being the important one. But you can even see from the immediate context in verses 6 and 7 that the, the concern of the Lord Jesus is to leave his disciples feeling cherished by God, not threatened by him. Let's read verse 6 together. Immediately after he's told them to fear God, he says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten by God? Remarkable that, isn't it? There has been a severe decline in the sparrow population in central Scotland recently, due in great measure to the increase in the population of the magpies, as far as we can tell. But whatever happened to the poor sparrows? 
And there must have been tens of thousands of them, if not more. Whatever happened to them, Jesus says here, not one of them is forgotten by God our Heavenly Father. Well, that's great for the sparrows, but how does that help us? Well, read on, verse 7. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. What an incredible understatement. The Bible's full of understatement. You know that expression in Genesis, he made the stars also. Classic understatement. Here is another understatement as Jesus addresses his friends, his followers, and tells them that they're worth more than many sparrows. What a classic understatement. If anyone knew what we were worth to God in that moment, it was the Lord Jesus. He knew that it would cost God his son to win us for eternity. He knew that it would cost him his life on the cross to save us from hell. How true that we're worth more than many sparrows. But look at it again in the context. You see, Jesus tells us in verse 5 that we should fear God so that he can tell us in verse 7 that we're not to be afraid. That's not a contradiction. He doesn't say in verse 5, I'll tell you who you should fear. And then forget he said that and say in verse 7, I tell you, don't be afraid. The one is the gateway to the other. He tells us that we should fear God in order that we would escape all other fears so that he can say to us, I tell you, don't be afraid because we're loved and precious to him I wonder would it be true to say that the fear of men not only stops us fearing God but the fear of men stops us experiencing the true love of God you see if we fear man ultimately we will never rate the truth of verse 7 that the very numbers of our the very hairs of our head are numbered We won't really rate that if we're not thinking about the infinite God that we worship. If we fear man, we will never know the overwhelming joy of verse 11. That when you are hauled up, brought before the synagogues, rulers and authorities, religious and civic leaders, we're not to worry about what we will say or how we will defend ourselves. You see, it is an antagonistic inquiry. We'll feel the need to defend ourselves. For verse 12, the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say we'll never know that incredible joy we'll never know that provision of God's Holy Spirit in our minds and in our hearts if we fear man because we'll never get ourselves into that position in the first place so this call to fear God is not a call to be afraid of God in the way that we would be afraid of some cantankerous, unpredictable, unloving force in the sky rather it is a call to make God's truth his glory, his kingdom, his son. It is a call to make these our overarching concern. It is a call to make these the things that we regard as of greatest importance, to which we give absolute priority, in which we most greatly delight, so that the fear of man and the fear of death is wonderfully cut down to size. You see, this is the fear that liberates from the fear that debilitates time is gone let me say a word about application how does this passage affect the friends of the Lord Jesus today well first of all we have to live with the perspective 
of the Lord Jesus. We have to live now with the perspective of the Lord Jesus. And we have to understand basically that eternity is more important than time. That's what this whole passage is about. That's why Jesus could say with absolute candor, I tell you my friends, don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. He's saying to Christian people, now you know that when the time comes for you to die, now don't worry, you're only going to be slightly killed. You're only going to be slightly killed. It could be a lot worse. Your death will be an inconvenience. It will bring a lot of things to an end, but there is a limit to the impact that death can have. And if that is true, then we need to live today in the midst of time, in the midst of busy lives, in the midst of choices, in the midst of building careers, in the midst of all the other things. We need to live now with an understanding that eternity is more important than time. And it doesn't seem like that. It seems that time is more important than eternity. That's why we have to think this through clearly. The great appeal of the Lord Jesus here is for his friends to stay close to him. Even when staying close to the Lord Jesus seems to be the most vulnerable place to be. And if you check out some of these websites that Adrian drew our attention to this morning, you'll discover exactly how true that is. But if we are prepared to stay true to the Lord and his gospel, then he says we'll be set free from our fear of everything and everyone else. If we're prepared to stay true to the Lord and confess him as our Lord before those who reject him and therefore reject us, then we're assured that we are truly his. Then we are assured that every sin of mine that grieved him has been forgiven. And that one day as we stand before him on the last day, he will claim us as his own forever. He will acknowledge us before his Father and his holy angels. So we need to think by way of application. We need to think these things through. But then there are also some things that we need to do. We've got to get this message out to Edinburgh, haven't we? We've got to think of ways of helping people to understand this choice of fear. Our family and our friends and our neighbours and our colleagues have all received that little booklet from the government in recent months telling us how to prepare for a full-scale emergency of some type or another. Is that not a frightening thing? To open the envelope and to be confronted with that information. Are these not scary days that we're living in? Well, maybe there's someone you could talk to about that. Maybe there's someone who would mention that booklet to you that they came across it again at the weekend when they were tidying up. And could you maybe explain this passage to them? Could you maybe help them to see why you take God with absolute seriousness? Because of what he's done for you and his son, the Lord Jesus. Could you maybe help them to see how they too could be set free from the dreadful and understandable fears that beset them today? Maybe you could do that. Maybe you could help them to see that there is a fear that debilitates and there's a fear that liberates. And if they will orientate their life around a fear of God, that is a reverential awe of Him, taking Him seriously, applying His Word, trusting His Son, then they're going to be set free from all fears. We also ought to pray by way of practical application. We ought to pray for the suffering church, for our brothers and sisters who are living in verse 4 who have the threats of those who can kill the body, that they won't keel over, that they will stay strong. 
We need to pray for those who are working in organizations like SASRA and the Mission to Military Garrisons who are working with frontline troops, those who go forth day and daily fearing death, fearing those who in a moment of time can kill the body with a bullet or a bomb, that they may have an opportunity to open up the gospel. You see, these are the applications if we understand this passage aright. That there is great news to get out to Edinburgh. There is great news to get out to the forces in Iraq. There is news to get out to people all over the world who are beset reasonably by fears. We're not saying the fear isn't there. We're not saying there's no reason to be afraid. Jesus said to his disciples, you need to be on your guard against the Pharisees. There is clear and present danger. But how glorious that we have a message that turns all of that around completely. Finally, we saw in verse 1 how the Lord Jesus was addressing, speaking first to his disciples in the hearing of that vast crowd. What if at this point you are not known to Jesus as one who's trusted in him? What if you've come for the remembrance service to Charlotte Chapel this morning, but you're not known as a friend of Jesus, that you've not trusted him, and he knows you, but he doesn't know you as one who belongs to him? Well, this morning you have a choice of fears. Here is your application. You can continue to live in uncertainty. You can continue to live with the fear of man, which is an absolute certainty. And you can continue to fear death, which is a certainty. Or you can get to know this Lord Jesus who held many thousands spellbound as they listened to him speaking the very words that we've read this morning. You can get to know this Lord Jesus and if you get to know him, you will discover that he didn't leave just a record of his teaching. He left the legacy of his own death. He left the legacy of his own death on the cross when he died in the place of sinful people like us, who by nature do not treat God with any seriousness, but who run from him and who treat ourselves with absolute seriousness and depose his rightful rule of our lives. you get to know this Lord Jesus, you'll discover that his death for the sinner was acceptable before God. And you will come, if you discover this Lord Jesus, you will come in time across a verse I came into in my reading on Friday morning from Hebrews 7 that reminded me that Jesus has conquered death and today he lives, here's the quote, in the power of an indestructible life. In the power of an indestructible life. I love that phrase. He lives to forgive and put right with God all who put their trust in Him. He lives today in the power of an indestructible life to pour into our lives His Holy Spirit so that as we've turned from our sin, so that as we take Him with ultimate seriousness, we have His power at work in us in all circumstances of our lives so that as we go to a world that is dying, a world that is fearful, we may take the great message of His salvation so that tomorrow at coffee break when people talk to us about their fears we can explain to them how we are afraid not let's pray together